It was the end of the world. You had one hour to go. Um, anyone want to share? What would you do? Well, that's the world's answer, isn't it? That's Pepsi's answer. Uh, what's the last thing you'd do? You'd fall into the arms of a lover. You'd lose your singleness, right? Um, you'd maybe get laid, get kissed. Uh, that's kind of the world's answer, isn't it? Uni folks, maybe the people you go to class with, that's what they'd say, wouldn't it? If you've only got ten minutes left, you've got an hour left, whatever it is, you know, what would you do? Well, you'd lose your singleness. You'd hook up with someone. Uh, it seems to me that that is something that our world would subscribe to. Uh, if you just had a little moment left, then you'd go for it. But tonight we're going to be looking at, uh, at what God says. If you knew that the end of the world was just around the corner, God actually says something radically different to that. Uh, he actually says that Jesus is coming back very soon. That, that That's actually the very next thing on the Christian's agenda. Jesus is going to come back in glory. I don't know if you've noticed that as you've read through the New Testament. Verses that say things like this, 2 Peter 3.10, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.2, they say that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's going to come suddenly. That's actually how we're supposed to live, like that guy in the Pepsi ad. The very next thing on our agenda is that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to come back in glory. It's going to come suddenly. And when he comes, it could be tonight, uh, he's going to return in glory. He's going to wipe away all sin. He's going to wipe away all suffering. It's going to wipe away all pain and death and tears once and for all. It's going to be glorious, isn't it? Something we look forward to. And I hope it's something that that we believe in, that that is the very next thing on God's agenda. Uh, This is one of the, the AFES doctrinal statements. We have nine statements. Number nine is this, that we have the expectation of the personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus is going to come back, that he's going to fix our world. The end of the world as we know it is just around the corner. So the question is, what are you going to do? How are you going to live? Uh, Specifically, tonight's question, the question that Paul asks us is, how are you going to live as someone who's not currently married? See, after speaking last week, mostly about married people, Paul returns now to speak about those who aren't married. If you look at look there in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 25, uh, he says this. He says, now concerning the Parthenon. Now I'm not talking about that, you know, that building in, in Greece. That's actually a Greek word. Um, that there's a little bit of confusion, confusion about that word. He says, now concerning the Parthenon, sometimes it's translated as betrothed, uh, if you've got an ESV. Uh, if you've got an NIV, it might be translated as virgins. There's a little bit of discrepancy over this word. What exactly is the Parthenon? Paul says, now concerning the Parthenon, I have no command from the Lord. So there's nothing that Jesus actually said uh, to this issue. But he says, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy, mercy is trustworthy. So this is Paul's advice for the Parthenon. Who are they? Well, it seems to me uh, that the word is somewhat flexible. It's actually pretty inclusive, but basically it refers to people who are either single, who are virgins, who are betrothed, or as we'd say, engaged. Basically he's talking to people, giving advice to people 
who aren't yet married. Single people, people who might be dating, people who might be engaged, uh, they all seem to fall under this term. If you're not yet married, uh, that's who the Parthenon seem to be. Uh, it's just a little bit hard to translate that uh, into one word. So some go with virgins, some go with single people, some go with the betrothed. And tonight, if that's who the Parthenon are, then looking around this room, uh, that applies to most of us, doesn't it? Most of us here aren't married. In fact, maybe I'm the... Oh, no, Drew's here as well. Yeah. I'm going to you, buddy. Yeah. Drew's more experienced than me. Oh, and Mew. Mew's married too. Yeah, so there's a few of us here who are married. Yeah, yeah. So most, most of you guys, you guys can just chill out. Don't worry about it too much. There'll be some things which are applicable to you. There is a bit about you not being allowed to ditch them. That was last week, yeah. And perhaps, you know, as a single person, as some of you who are dating, there's some questions, you know, rallying around in your mind. Perhaps you're asking questions about what sort of relationship you should be pursuing if you're pursuing a relationship at all. Should I date? Should I stay single? Should I marry? And if I marry, who should I marry? When should I marry? I've been dating for so long, should we just get married now? All those sorts of questions. Maybe maybe you're thinking, well, I'd like to date, (coughs) I'd like to marry, but what if I don't? What does that say about me? Now, these are the sorts of questions that Paul helps us with tonight in this last section in 1 Corinthians 7. He gives advice, advice which is radically different uh, to what our world gives, radically different to what our culture will say to single people. Yesterday I was thinking about this and I thought, I'm just going to Google that. Advice to single people. Googled it, right? Hundreds, I didn't read them all. Yeah, I've got covenant eyes, so I'm okay. <laughs> talked about that last week. Hundreds of hits that came back. What was the advice? Don't be. Essentially, that was the advice. Don't be single. Uh, ways on, you know, dating tips for singles. Six steps to losing your virginity. Six steps to this. Ten steps to not being single. That's basically the message that you get when you Google advice for singles. There was one page which came up, I think, on the third. You know how they come up in like tens in the little Google search? I think it was the third page maybe number six or something, there was one page that actually gave what I thought was some good advice for actually how to get on with being single. Basically what it said was focus on friendships and enjoy your freedom. That's not bad advice, really. Focus on friendships and enjoy your freedom. But it was a standout. That was a standout amongst the majority that our world says, well, don't be single. Singleness isn't good. That's what our world tells us, isn't it? I mean, it seems to me that, you know, from Google, maybe even to Disney movies, the simplest of Disney's movies, they tell us that there's a happy ending. People live happily ever after. The prince, the princess, the carriage, the sunset. You know, from that kind of simplicity that, you know, is, is being taught to our children, if you've got young children. You know, to even maybe the more sophisticated of you who like to read Jane Austen. Jane Austen says, It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife. Uh, The message, what is it? What is the message that our world gives us? It's singleness. Oh no, don't be single. But tonight, 
uh, from the pen of a single man, from the Apostle Paul, and on what he said there in verse 25, on behalf of the single man, Jesus. Well, we hear this advice. Uh, We hear radically different relationship advice than what our world will ever give us. See, firstly, if you've got your Bibles there, have a look there in verses 26 to 28. The first thing Paul says is that it's actually okay to not need to change your relationship status. He says it's okay to stay as you are. In fact, he says there might actually be times when it's better to stay as you are. Have a look there in verse 26 to 28. He says this, he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you of that. So Paul says here, he says, it's good to remain as you are. That's a good thing. And he gives two reasons for this. In verse 26 he says, because of the present distress, it is good to remain as you are. Most likely you read the commentators on, on this book of the Bible. The commentators tell us that at the time Paul was writing to the Corinthians, there was a serious grain famine in the land. People were dealing with this distress of just not having enough food. It seems that's the most likely distress that he's talking about. And when you think about it, that kind of makes some sense, doesn't it? If there's a food shortage, then it makes sense that you would need to devote yourself to working hard, to kind of just surviving, to ploughing the crops, to getting food, to get married, to possibly have kids back in that day when there was no contraception. Well, that's going to put a lot of strain on your resources, isn't it? To change situations would be stressful. Paul says here, you know, they don't sin if they do marry, but it will bring extra strain. Verse 28, second reason, he says there will be worldly troubles. Now, I mean, we don't often face the distress of famine here in Australia. It's not often something that that we face, which we can be very thankful to God for. But I think, you know, there could be some times when this can apply to us, when it might actually be best not to pursue changing our relationship status. You know, if you're starting a new job, maybe that is stressful enough that you don't need to start dating and trying to get married at that time. If you're looking after someone in your family who's critically ill and they just need you, maybe it's best to not try to pull yourself away from that and just concentrate on getting married. There's probably times when there will be enough stress or distress in your life when you just need to concentrate on that. But the problem is, isn't it, that it's just so hard for us to kind of settle with that. I don't know, you know, if you struggle with this, but whenever you kind of log on to Facebook and you see this come up, you know, one of your friends has changed their relationship status. It comes up huge on the news feed. I don't know if it comes up huge on your little wall, but it does for mine. You know, person X is now going out with person X. You know, it's just huge there. I don't know how you feel when you see that, if you're a single person. Maybe you think, why not me? What's wrong with me? I want to be in a relationship. (laughs) 
I want, maybe you think, I want to change my situation. I want to be that person. Have that on my wall. I think you can't marry Steve. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to like identify with, you know, doing that kind of thing. Asking rhetorical questions. Thanks. Um, maybe you think, well, there's no significant crisis in my life. I'd like a relationship change. I want that status update. Maybe you just feel like you want someone to love you, that you want that relationship, that you want marriage, you want kids. That if you got that, then that would fulfill you that that would give you what you think you need. And Paul says in this next section, he actually goes on to say, if that's you, he says it's okay to desire those things. They're good things. Marriage, kids, they're good things. But what he says in our next section, in section 2, is he says if they become ultimate things, if they become your everything, if they become your idol, the thing that you live for, then you need a reality check. You need to be reminded of the time frame in which you live. You need to be reminded of the ultimate relationship for which you live. You need to be reminded of Jesus, of his love for you, of how much he loves you, both now as you are, and you need to be reminded of what's coming, of what Jesus is going to give you very soon when he ushers in the new world. So have a look here in verses 29 to 31. He says this, he says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Why? Well, for the present form of this world is passing away. What does Paul say in these verses? He says, the time is short. The present form of this world is passing away. So, what that means is that all these relationships in our life, all these things that are going on, he says, they're not to be the ultimate thing. He says, have them, but don't have them as the thing in your life. Now, what he wants to say is that God must be the ultimate relationship in your life. He lists three different things, three different things that I think are tempting for us, for them to become our ultimate. And what Paul says is don't cling to them too closely. Firstly, he, he looks at our marriages. See there in verse 29, he says, Let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now you could kind of just read that in isolation, take that verse out, and if you're a husband you could think, cool, I can be a jerk. You know, I can just go and do whatever I want. Uh, you know, I've got a wife back home, that's nice, but I can just go and have a party, whatever it is. But, you know, that's not how you read the Bible. Now you have to read the whole of Scripture together. And what do you see? Well, you read something like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. You read Ephesians chapter 5 and you see just how much Paul puts how much pressure Paul says, you know, pressure he puts on husbands to care for their wives, to sub, to give their lives sacrificially to their wives. Paul's not, you know, saying in light of in light of the end, you know, in light of anything you can just go and be a jerk. Now what he's saying here is that in light of the fact that Jesus could come back at any minute, in light of the fact that the present form of this world is passing away, in light of the fact that even marriages 
are passing away. Because that's what Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 30. Jesus says over there, he says, that there are no marriages in heaven. So in light of the fact that the present form of the world, the way we relate to each other in marriage, in light of the fact that that's passing away, he says it would be crazy. It would be crazy for me to put all my hopes, all my dreams in my marriage to my wife. That would be crazy. It would be so crazy to get caught up in that, in that present form of the world, that I would pass away with it when Jesus returns. See, that's a real temptation, I think, for those of us who are married, to just so invest in our marriage and our family that we never really look out and think about the people around us. We never, and we forget to look up and think about God and, and what he's doing in the world, what he wants us to do as a couple, to serve God together. He says it would be crazy to get so caught up in something that's passing away that it becomes your everything and you forget about God and in the end you pass away with it when Jesus returns. Secondly, he moves on and he, he talks about our mourning and our rejoicing, the things that make us sad, the things that make us happy. And he says don't make them ultimate either. Don't let the sadness in your life as hard as it may be at times, don't let the sadness in your life make you feel that God doesn't love you. No, he says, those who mourn live as though they were not mourning. Don't let the sadness in your life let you become someone who can't trust in God and then give up on God. But on the flip side, he says, don't let the pleasures of this world, the things that make you happy, uh, don't let them distract you from seeing that you actually need God, that with God are things that are far greater than the pleasures of this world. See, whether it's the things that make us really sad or whether it's the things that make us really happy, don't get so caught up in them that you forget about your ultimate relationship with God. Third in this list, uh, he picks up on what maybe we are using to make ourselves happy, our possessions. See it there at the end of verse 30? He says, those who buy as if they had no goods. Those who deal as though they had no dealings. Don't make your possessions the ultimate thing in your life. Cling loosely to the things of the world, Paul says. Hold loose to what you treasure in this world. Why? Well, because you won't be able to hold on to them forever. Because they're going to pass away. Cars, phones... Facebook profiles, good looks, uni transcripts, girlfriends, boyfriends, marriages, all will one day be torn from our hands. So cling lightly to them, Paul says. Don't find your satisfaction in them. They find it in God who truly loves you. One of the lessons that God has been teaching Laura and myself lately, I think, has been this. That we're not to judge whether God loves us or not, whether God's good to us or not, by the circumstances in our life. By whether we have lots of stuff, by whether we have good relationships, by whether our kids are healthy, whatever it is. No, God says in his word, it's not the circumstances in our life that show us that God really loves us. It's something else. It's the cross. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, he said, 
God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we know that God loves us. He sent his son to die for us. See, it's so easy, I think, to think that if God really loved me, then he'd give me a spouse. Or if God really loved me, then he'd give me good grades. I wouldn't be so stressed about these assignments. He'd give me better stuff. But none of those things are true. None of those things are true. God really does love you. How do you know? Well, he died for you. Jesus died for you. And when he returns, and perhaps that's going to be very soon, perhaps that's going to be tonight, when he returns, then you will receive everything you ever dreamed of. So trust him. Make him the ultimate thing in your life, living for him, clinging to him, despite what happens in your world. Don't let those other things distract you so that you take your eye off the prize. You see, I think there is a sense, you know, that the movies, the Pepsi ads of the world, they've got it kind of half right, don't they? You know, when the the end of the world is in view, there is no time to waste. It's time to get on with action. But not because soon there's going to be nothing left and everything will just end. No, but because soon Jesus is going to return. And soon it's all going to begin. Soon the real loving, the real living, is going to start. See, now the time that we live in, this 70, 80, I read a blog post the other day, we have 25,000 days as adults apparently. 25,000 days as adults. Once we turn 18, apparently we live to like average, I forget now, average lifespan. 25,000 days, Paul says that's, that's the short term. Don't focus on the short term. See, when Jesus returns, that's when the long term is going to begin. So make him your ultimate relationship. This, what we see around us, this isn't all there is. No, the best is yet to come. In the movie Moulin Rouge, there's a scene where Nicole Kidman falls for Ewan McGregor. They sing this little song and They say, suddenly the world seems such a perfect place. Suddenly it moves with such perfect grace. Suddenly my life doesn't seem like such a waste. You know, the violins are playing, it's all romantic. But it's complete denial of what God is saying here in 1 Corinthians 7. He's not finding a lover that will make the world perfect. No, the thing that's going to make the world perfect is when Jesus returns. That's what's going to make the world perfect. When he comes and he wipes away every tear, every suffering, everything that causes pain, when he wipes away even death itself and conquers it, that's when the world will be perfect. That's when it will be made new, when Jesus comes back. We won't even recognise this world. It's going to be so good. No sin, no pain, no death. Amazing. So what's Paul saying in these words? Get ready for that world. Make sure you make it by sticking with Jesus. See, thirdly, in light of what Paul's just said, he turns in verses 32 
to 35 to say the one thing that our world will never say. But he can say it because he said that God is our ultimate relationship. Paul actually says, it is good to be single. Why does he say that? Well, he says, because it's simpler to serve Jesus. It's simpler to stick with Jesus and keep your focus on him when you're single. doesn't mean that it's, it's all easy going. But let's have a look there in verses 32 to 35. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Why does Paul say it's good to be single? It says because of the simplicity in serving Jesus. Now it's been it's been said in a little poem. I couldn't work out who actually wrote this, but it says this it says marriage is not all moonlight and candlelit dinners. It's also the frustration caused by being two sinners. <laughs> marriage is not everything that will make you happy. It's also the dishes, the debt, and the dirty nappy. It's a cute little poem. And you see the point of it is that it actually brings the realism that Paul is trying to bring in these verses about marriage. The grass isn't always greener on the other side. Even for the very best of marriages, I don't know if you've worked it out yet, but this happily ever after, that only happens if your name is Prince Charming or Cinderella and you live in some fairy tale land. Just as singleness brings anxieties, so does marriage. It's not that any of those problems or complications or anxieties are necessarily bad things in themselves. They're not things to be avoided or shirked. They just are what they are. They're part of marriage. They're part of what you sign up for when you sign the marriage certificate. And that's what Paul is saying. There are complications in marriage that you can avoid if you're single. There is a simplicity in service, in your service to God that you only have when you're single. It's the sort of simplicity that Christian men that I look up to, preachers like John Stott and John Chapman, Dick Lucas, if you know any of those names, all single men who gave their lives to preaching the gospel, to living for Jesus. It's the simplicity that a woman who I heard about, Jan Russell, this is her story. Jan was a single lady. And rather than think that her single life was just a waste because she wasn't married, no, she used her life for Jesus. Jan became a Bible translator. Uh, especially because she was single, she was able to go to this tribe in a place called the Togo in West Africa. She spent 30 years there learning the spoken language of the tribe. Then she sat down with the tribe's people. She actually invented a written language with them. She then taught them how to read that written language and how to write their new language. Then she started translating the Bible into that new written language. After that, she founded a literacy and Bible foundation institute to continue her work. See, Jan had the opportunity to do that. 
she would never have been able to do those things if she was married with four kids. It just would have been an impossibility. There are some benefits from that simplicity that we have when we are single. Jan used that very well, didn't she? She used her freedom for what Paul calls there in verse 35, this undivided devotion to the Lord. And this, you might have noticed, this has actually been a real central theme, hasn't it, over the past three weeks as we've gone through this series. Paul's number one concern is that Christ, that Jesus, is actually central in our lives, that he's taking that number one place. See, for Paul, what matters most is, as we saw last week, not whether we're single or whether we're married. No, but that each one of us is actually single-minded in our devotion to Jesus. It's not marriage that gives you value. It's Jesus. It's that he died for you that makes you special. You are of immeasurable value because Christ died for you as you are. You don't need to get married to be valuable. You have great opportunities like Jan did to serve Jesus as you are as a single person. And this, I think, is very important for us to hear, isn't it? As single people, if that's you. And especially important for you to remember if you remain single. Most of you are in your early 20s. Can I say that is no reason to fret about not being in a relationship. Many people, for many people, continued singleness can be great sadness, can bring them much anxiety. Many people understandably long for God's good gift of marriage and sex and children. Uh, Many actually feel insufficient and incomplete. But rest assured, that is not what God thinks of you. God does not think you're incomplete because you're single. God says, I love you. I want you as you are to serve me. I choose you to serve me. And you know, over the last few weeks, I think we've been warning, we've been hearing these warnings about having too low a view of sex and too low a view of marriage and how we wouldn't treat it properly if we have too low a view. Of, you know, taking, taking what God has designed as something really precious and making it cheap. But I think here we see that the opposite danger is also true, isn't it? It's possible that whether we're single or married, we could have too high a view of marriage, of relationships. You know, to treat it like our world does is this necessity of life. That we just can't live without it. That we will be incomplete, unfulfilled if we never get married. But Paul warns against that here. Now He warns us not to do the thing that we so often do with good gifts from God. We, we take those gifts and we make them ultimate things. We make them God instead of God's <laughs> gifts. Sex and marriage is good, Paul says, but they're not God. They really are something, Paul says, but they're not everything. They can be good things to set your hopes on, but they're not the thing to set our hopes upon. But you might object. Uh, you might you might have missed last week. You might be thinking, well, I get that, Steve, but what about sex? You, know, you might not say that out loud, but maybe that's what you're thinking. What about sex? Surely I have needs. No, God says what you have 
are desires. And they're good desires, they're right desires. God made those desires in you. But they're not needs. A 37-year-old virgin, Robert DeMoss, says in his book, a book called Sex and the Single Person, it's a good book if you'd like to read it, he says, sex is a drive, not a need. We need air, food, sleep and water to exist. Sexual expression is optional. You're not going to die if you never have sex in your life. You will die if you stop eating food and stop breathing air. See, Paul in these verses, he says, it's good to be single. But he's not quite finished. He also says in those final verses that it's good to marry as well. So to finish off this talk, I want to say three quick things about dating and marriage and then three quick things about being single. A bit of practical advice. Take it or leave it. Ask questions at the end if you feel you'd like to. Firstly, I think with regards to dating and marriage, I think the first thing you need to ask, first question you need to think about is why are you dating? Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but in our world's approach, it seems to me that three of the big reasons people date are these. You date for security, date for status, and you date for sex. Uh, they do it to feel safe, to get that sense of security from being with someone. But of course, that's completely opposite to the Christian view of the world, isn't it? For the Christian, our security comes from our relationship with Jesus. You know, the fact that Jesus is the king, that he's in charge of everything, and that he's the one that loves us. That's where we get our security from. Knowing that one, that the one in charge of the whole world is the one that actually really loves us. That should make us feel secure. Our status, uh, it doesn't come from being attached to a hot guy or a good looking girl. No, it comes from being a child of God. That's our status. And as, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, we don't date for sex. Sex isn't for dating. Sex is for marriage, for keeping marriages strong. We need to be careful, I think, as Christians, as to exactly why we're dating. If you're dating, I think the prospect of marriage should be somewhere in your mind. Uh, there should be at least some potential for marriage with the person you're dating. Now, I don't think that doesn't mean that you have to be sure that you're going to marry them before you start dating them, before you go out for coffee. But it does mean that if you're sure you're not going to marry them, then maybe you shouldn't start going out. Otherwise, what are you doing? Well, you're setting one of you or both of you up for a fall. Secondly, who should you date? Uh, who should you date? Well, there's no way I can be prescriptive about this. I'm not going to look at, you know, Jason and say, well, you know, I'm pretty sure I know the one for you. <laughs> Let me arrange a marriage for you or something like that. <laughs> Maybe not for him. Maybe not for the girl either. There's a number on your But I, I think, you know, we can't be overly prescriptive. But there are a few guidelines. Uh, it should be someone who you are what I, I'll probably call com comprehensibly attracted to. I say that comprehensibly because it can't be just physical attraction alone. Physical attraction is good. It means that you'll probably be able to love them <coughs> with your sex. But there's so much more to marriage than just the physical. Uh, what I mean by being comprehensibly attracted to someone is actually that you're attracted to the person's character. 
Uh, when you begin to kind of understand who they are, to mine the depths of another person's character, you understand what they love, what their mission is in life, what their passions are, the ways they love to serve God, the way they use their gifts from God. When you see that, then you begin to see what they love, what they're on about, where they want to go, maybe what their future self will be like. Remember last week how we saw in Ephesians 5 that the purpose of marriage is actually to help each other become more glorious, more like Christ, become the unique, glorious people that God is wanting to make us? Well, marriage partners can see, you know, I see what you're becoming, what you're going to be, and though, even though, frankly, you're just not there yet, you're not perfect, and none of us ever will be, the flashes of that future self, they attract me. I really like that in you. Now, of course, this, for this to happen, uh, the other person would also have to be a Christian. Uh, you'd have to say, you know, from the whole serving God with, you'd think that it would make sense that Christians would date Christians and marry Christians. But as I chat to a lot of young people, this is certainly not a given amongst Christian people. But have a look there in verse 39 in your Bibles. Verse 39, Paul says, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Now, I've heard some people argue, they've said it to me, well, that doesn't apply to me, I'm not a widow. <laughs> but do you really think that's the point? <laughs> you, you only have to marry a Christian if it's your second time around, <laughs> and you're a lady? Now, that's, that's not the point. I think it's hard to see this as anything other than the Bible's most direct instance that Christians should marry Christians. And if dating is supposed to have the potential of leading to marriage, then it makes sense that you would date Christians. But maybe the big question for you isn't who. Maybe it's when. Maybe you're in a relationship. Maybe you're dating someone. Maybe you're engaged. When do you actually go, yeah, all right, it's time. Well, I think the best advice I've ever heard on this is this. It says, after the friendship has been proved, but before the sexual attraction becomes a problem. So after the friendship has been proved, but before the sexual attraction becomes a problem. In other words, after you're ready to commit. After you see that person, you go, yes, I could spend the rest of my life with them, but before, to use Paul's words in verse 36, you start acting improperly towards your virgin. Don't worry about having to date for two or three or four years just because that seems like what everyone else does. If you're ready to commit and you can't keep your hands off each other, then get married. That's what Paul says here. That's the dating advice. But what about for singles? What do you need if you're going to glorify God as a single person? Well, I want to suggest three things to finish up. You need patience, you need purity, and you need perspective. These are all things that we need to work on. If you're going to glorify God in your single singleness, you're going to need to be patient. Both patient when it comes to marriage and patient when it comes to sex. You see, it may be that God has someone prepared for you, or it may be that he doesn't. But either way, as hard as it is, you're going to have to wait to find out. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that you have to be passive while you wait. You just kind of never get to know people or you're just waiting for 
missed the right to just swaddle into your room and say, hey, here I am. No, by all means, go out and begin to grow relationships. Develop good friendships. Have fun with people, with single people, married people. Help yourself to be patient by actually finding friends who you can share life with, who you can get to know, who kind of just help you deal with life, who you can share stuff with. Part of the reason God gives us the church, we're not just individuals who worship God in isolation, while we meet as groups is so that we can support each other in our friendships. So first, patience. Second, purity. Throughout these chapters, I hope you've seen that married and single people are both called to purity. The only real difference is the shape that that purity takes. If you're a single person, your purity is shaped by celibacy, by not sleeping around, by not fooling around. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to be paranoid about this. I think some Christians can get pretty paranoid. It's all A-frame hugs and you know high-fives that never actually touch hands. I mean, that's just ridiculous, right? Affection among single Christians, I think, is perfectly fine. It's good to give people a hug. It's nice to put your arm around a friend, especially if they're crying. I've seen Christians not put their arm around a friend who's crying because they think it would be inappropriate. I think that's terribly sad. It's when affection is given in order to arouse the other person sexually that you know you need to start backing off. That's when it becomes a problem. And beyond that, I think it's pretty hard to say anymore. We all want a line, of course. We all want people to say, you can do this and you can't do that. Scott Petty, in his little book on sex, he says this. He says, don't touch anything of your partner's that is covered by underwear. It's pretty good advice, I reckon. But the big problem here with drawing a line is the reason we want a line in the first place, isn't it? I suspect many of us want a line because we want permission. We want to know how much we can get away with. We want to walk as close to the edge of the cliff before we fall off. But less is almost always better than more, especially the earlier you are in a relationship. You're far more likely to regret doing more rather than less. That's purity. And finally, perspective. Perspective is what Paul's been beating down on us in tonight's section, isn't it? In all of life, including our sexuality, we need to keep God in the picture. We need to remember the difference that Jesus actually makes to our world. See, without Jesus, where would we be? We'd still be in sin, we'd still be in darkness, still in guilt, without hope, and with a terrible future awaiting us. But with him... Because of his death for us, he's washed us clean, he's taken away all our sin, taken away all our guilt. He guarantees us that hope of heaven, of eternal life, of joy, never ending. I mean, don't forget the difference that Jesus makes in your world. Remember that now you are his. Paul says back in chapter 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Remember that. Remember the, the love with which He loves you. And we'll start, and that love will actually start to fulfill those longings that you have for love. Find your satisfaction in Him. Remember that, that heaven's coming. 
that it's just around the corner. Remember that it's going to outscore even the best things in this life a billion to one. Set your hopes on what's coming. Cling to that. And let that satisfy you. See, when you get to heaven, when we get to heaven, the one thing that we're never going to hear is people whining and whinging about the marriage and the sex they missed out on in this life. See, in any competition between heaven and marriage or heaven and sex, heaven wins. Heaven always wins. Why? Well, because when the end of the world comes, that's when we'll see most clearly that Jesus wins. That's when we'll see him in all his glory. It's when we'll look around and we'll say, man, I'm glad I stuck with Jesus because this place is amazing. It's far better than I ever dreamed. And it's when Jesus himself will come up to us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome home. I'm so glad that you trusted in me. How about I pray for us? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this amazing hope of heaven that you give us in your word. Father, I just pray that you would help us to renew our minds in your word that teaches us that this world is not all there is. So help us not to just cling to the fleeting desires that will one day pass. Help us to long for you and help us to live for you in all areas of our life, particularly in the areas of our sex lives and our purity. Father, we thank you so much that that you have bought us with a price. You've bought us with the precious blood of your Son. So help us tonight, tomorrow, this week, this year, to honour you, to glorify you with our bodies in all that we do. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.